Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting today's show from SFO Airport in San Francisco in the United States' Pacific Northwest. Nice airport, interesting place for sure, very cultural, very interesting, uh, and uh, unusual, really. Uh, something um, cultural and different, uh, this area. Uh, it's got its issues that you have uh, maybe heard about, and it's also got some uh, beautiful positive things. Be that as it may, I'm here for uh, spreading the story of Israel, the light of Yiddishkeit, Judaism, uh, God's word, uh, and uh, the effort to return to Zion, and especially to the heartland, Judea and Samaria, and especially the city of Hebron, which is the heart of the heartland, one of the hearts of the heartland. Uh, and so we are out here and traveling. Uh, this trip started with the beautiful Israel Day Parade in New York City. It was awesome, actually. You know what? Really, it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was just a lot of, as we say, ruach. There was a lot of good energy out there. And there were protesters. And I was on the Hebron Fund float, and I yelled them down from my microphone uh, and boom boxes that were on the side there and just were able to, uh, the speakers just, you know. But uh, And the same for the Nature cart. There were the left-leaning protesters. Then there was the ultra-Orthodox Nature Karta protesters, but they were such a minority, such a minority, and therefore I'm not going to give them any more time. They were the small part of the of the um, of the whole tale. The real the real issue was uh, was a love of Israel and New York tri-state area people, hundreds of thousands coming out strongly in support of Israel and the love of Israel, and it was just an awesome sight to behold. And I got a hats off to New York City for doing such a good job at uh, making sure that people were safe. And at the same time, while there was a lot of cops and there was a lot of, you know, uh, security, it felt very free. It felt very fun and light and good-humored. And there was just good energy out there. And I want to really uh, thank Hashem that I had a chance to be part of the Chevron Fund float, which is really one of the only, like, there's a few others, but well, we're the, like, nationalist, right-wing, you know, biblical city float, and people were just loving it as we were going down with Jewish music. Great stuff. From there, I went to the Besheva Conference, uh, the Arut Sheva Jerusalem Conference run by the Besheva Magazine. And that was also fun. I emceed uh, a, few, um, a few panels and interviewed a few uh, interesting people. But the more interesting uh, panel was not mine. It was uh, actually Alan Dershowitz uh, debating Knesset member Simcha Rothman. And I thought that they uh, did a, a great job discussing the issues, and I think that people should hear this debate and discussion. And so, therefore, uh, I'm actually going to use my privilege uh, as an MC at this conference to play a segment of the Jerusalem Conference in New York City, Besheva, which is the, an Israeli uh, uh, nationalist newspaper. Uh, and they hosted this debate by a friend of mine, a Knesset member, Simcha Rothman, uh, and, of course, the uh, world-renowned jurist, um, uh, Alan Dershowitz. So let's actually take a listen to that uh, and, uh, you know, get, get a little perspective of the stuff that was discussed in New York. By the way, um, Simcha Rothman, Knesset member Simcha Rothman, was attacked by protesters, and he took away uh, the bullhorn that they were using into his ear, and they stepped on his wife's foot, and they threatened his wife, and she was shaken up. Uh, all that in the name of free speech and democracy. Uh, I guess they're not into free speech. They're into uh, with their version of democracy, which is not his version of democracy. Well, I guess you could decide for yourself. Let's listen uh, to the debate. 
So Simcha, you've been the talk of the day in Israel over the past 24 hours, and we want to address this incident in which um, uh, uh, protesters, some would say an anti-government activist, harassed you on the street, was walking after you for a, f a few blocks here in New York City, shouting in your ear constantly with a megaphone, um, trying to express you know, her First Amendment rights, being here in the U.S., she would say. Uh, but you seized the megaphone away uh, from her and really grabbed the attention of the press in Israel. What's your comment about this? It's, a, it's quite a simple issue because um, there were demonstrations outside of the place that we had dinner. No problem with it. Uh, as a long-time protester uh, <laughs> on many issues, I would respect any protest. Um, to go uh, for 10 blocks, for 20 minutes basically, after a couple, I was there with my wife, and um, use megaphone after we ignored them for a few blocks because they were not using megaphone. Using megaphone um, in a very close proximity, that's not a demonstration, that's not a protest. That's an attack. That's an attack on me, but because I don't take it personally, of course my wife, but the attack is actually on democracy. And maybe it's connected to the issues that we are talking, a judicial reform. Because many people claim that if the judicial reform will pass, that will be the end of democracy in the state of Israel. I don't know about any countries that lost its democracy because they changed the way they elect their judges. I don't know, maybe there was. I'm not such an expert in history, I don't know of. I know many countries that lost their democracy because they have small, very small, violent groups that went and harassed elected officials and threatened them until they give up their position, or until they give up their views. For that we have many, many examples, and people who don't understand the difference between a protest and a violent attack, they need some course, crash course in democracy. So, Mr. Dorshevitz, I see that you're nodding here. These two issues are, of course, somewhat intertwined. The issue of free speech, democracy, liberalism, and we'll touch on all of it. Um, you were interviewed several times about the judicial reform in Israel, and you refer to it as a grave mistake. Why is that? Well, first of all, I offer to defend you if anybody tries to prosecute you for defending yourself and your wife against using a megaphone essentially as a weapon. Under American law, it is permissible to restrict speech based on the loudness of the speech, the proximity of the speaker, time, manner, and location. And so there's no reason why anybody should be able to come up to you and put a megaphone in your ear, and you had the perfect right to prevent that in an orderly and reasonable way. Having said that, I really want to, first of all, commend the Israeli people for the manner in which, generally, they have conducted these demonstrations. They are a model. Uh, there has been very little, if any, violence. It's not like in America, where after the killing of George Floyd, we had massive, massive violence, uh, and we had lawyers throwing Molotov cocktails into police cars. Um, if there's ever a need to prove that Israel democracy will survive this dispute, uh, it's the fact that these demonstrations have gone on now for many, many, many weeks. 
My own preference is to not allow demonstrations in front of the homes of people like Aaron Barak or the homes of um, others who are private citizens. It's okay to demonstrate in front of the home of the president, in front of the home of the prime minister. Those are public places. But I don't approve of demonstrating in front of the homes of private citizens, even people who used to hold high positions of power. Having said that, I think both sides have misused the term democracy and have overstated the dangers to Israel if either side prevails. I agree with you that um, there was not be a danger to democracy if, in fact, the courts were somewhat weakened and didn't have the authority it had today. But I, I also think that if the courts were strengthened or maintained the way they are, we have democracies, America is an example of that, in which courts make some of the most important decisions, taking them away from the legislature. So my goal, and the reason I insisted that we have a conversation rather than a debate, is to try to bring us closer together. This is exactly the kind of issue that's a matter of degree, and where both sides have to compromise a little bit. Should I just lay out briefly what I think? Can yeah, but, but I, I think let's backtrack just a okay. little uh, yeah. because uh, I'll circle. Let's circle back to this uh, because uh, you know people in Israel has, have been engaged in this fierce public debate over the judicial reform for what, like 22 weeks now, 23 weeks, 22 years. 20, no, but, th this but, is. But been, I want to say for right. Mr. Rothman, it's been you know a top priority for you personally for over a decade as a lawmaker, but not only uh, as an activist, as a lawyer, uh, you've been studying this issue specifically in Israel, but also studying other judicial systems from around the world. Why are you so convinced that Israel is desperately in need for a fundamental change to a judicial system? Um, I have to say, um, I need to start with two st short stories. Um, the first story is um, the reason that, uh, I don't know if uh, Professor Dershowitz know, but one of the reasons I chose the path to be a lawyer is him. Meaning, when I read about him and I read about the cases that he uh, took, even cases that, uh, the most famous case, the case in Skokie, um, is that you go according to the rule of law against what you think is moral, which, which he got a lot of criticism, I think. What he, he basically, uh, you can say if he wants later, but he, he said this is the rule he should apply, the rule should apply even if all my bones ache when I, when I need to help those terrible people that wanted to shout. It was a neo-Nazi uh, protest. Um, near Skokie, where a lot of Holocaust survivors lived. So, and I thought that this is, this is a reason to become a lawyer. This is a reason to, uh, to invest in the rule of law that is different from what you think is right, what you think is just. It's important because that's what can keep a society together where there are disagreements. This story goes directly to a story. I, I started Meshilot, the organization, the Israeli Movement for Governability and Democracy, 10 years ago. And I worked on this issue a little bit before. But I think I 
became more committed in 2015. In 2015, two things happened. One of the Knesset members said that you should go over the Supreme Court with a D9 excavator. I don't know if you remember this quote. Demolished the Supreme Court. It was connected to one of the rulings about Amona, if I remember correctly. And everyone was very uh, troubled. Some supported, some said, it doesn't matter. But it was a very harsh thing to say. It doesn't matter what you think about the case. The other thing happened in quiet not, did, not make, did not make it to the news. And that was an interview by Chief Justice, for, then former Chief Justice Aaron Barak. And he was interviewed to one of law, the law reviews in Israel, of one of Haifa. And the interviewers asked him, what will happen if the court will say something and the government will say something else? It was 2015. I wasn't in government then. It wasn't judicial reform. It wasn't the end of democracy. And Chief Justice Aaron Barak said then something he did not say when he was asked the same question 20 years before. He said, in this case, the army will decide. If the chief of staff will send his tanks to protect the court, the court will prevail. If he will send it to the, to the Knesset, the Knesset will prevail. And, and I said, if a Knesset member speaks about, speak, speaks about D9 excavator, and former Chief Justice, who gave a totally different answer a few years ago, is talking about tanks, and by the way, it's against the rule of law to speak like that even, we need to solve this problem, and we need to solve it fast. We cannot, status quo, and with this I probably disagree, with Professor Dershowitz, status quo is not an option when, when you get to these kind of tensions. But you are satisfied from the status quo in Israel? Well, I don't think the status quo is an option either. Of course, uh, Justice uh, Barak, who I've known since 1966, and have dinner with him every time I go to Israel, as I have dinner with Prime Minister Netanyahu every time I go to Israel. I've known him since 1973. So I know the people on both sides of this. Um, Andrew Jackson said the same thing when the Supreme Court rendered a decision supporting Native Americans in the United States. Jackson said, the court has decided and now let them enforce it. Uh, no, that's not the way it should be in Israel and that's not the way it should be in the United States. There has to be respect for the courts, respect for the judiciary. It has to be self-enforcing. The way for many years it was difficult after Brown versus Board of Education, half the country, did not believe in integrated schools, just the way today half the country doesn't believe that a woman has the right to choose an abortion. And as you said, the rule of law requires you to accept things that you don't believe are necessarily correct, and that includes uh, judicial decisions. Look, I think that the Supreme Court, under my dear friend Aaron Brock, went too far in a lot of ways. I don't believe that the court should have the power to make decisions about whether the gas deal in Lebanon is permissible or whether or not there were decisions of uh, the Knesset that are unreasonable or even whether or not members can serve in the Knesset or serve in the cabinet. Those are political and economic decisions. 
But there are some areas that the court must, must have the last word, where we cannot allow democracy to prevail. That is, courts are supposed to be counter-majoritarian. Let me give you one striking example. Free speech. Nobody supports free speech by their enemies. Everybody, every legislature, America, Britain, Israel, would deny dissenters the right to say things like marching in Skokie, Illinois. 99.3% uh, of Americans would have disapproved of that. You need a counter-majoritarian Supreme Court to defend certain rights, free speech, due process for guilty people, due process for accused terrorists. They must have a fair trial. They must have a right to counsel. And if the Knesset won't give that to them, that has to be demanded by the court. So I think the road to compromise requires that there be limitations on what the Supreme Court can do in areas other than core human rights, core minority rights, core free speech rights, but there have to be constraints on the court when it comes to political, economic, or decisions regarding reasonableness. That's the road to compromise that will permit Israel to thrive as one of the strongest democracies in the world with a strong judiciary, a strong legislature, a weak president. Uh, but, uh, but the key to democracy, as Learned Hand once said, is democracy will die only when it dies in the hearts of the people. And if it does, no court can save it. And democracy is alive and well in Israel. No matter which way this dispute comes out, democracy will survive and will thrive. Let me just say one more thing. I think the left, the people today who are generally on, on my side, not necessarily in all matters, but on my side who are opposing reform, have been using extortionate tactics which have hurt Israel terribly. I think they should not, should not be trying to endanger the economy. They should not be trying to undercut the high-tech a community. They should not be trying to undercut the military. And uh, the reason I stopped <laughs> going to demonstrations of this kind is I think that the people who are opposing uh, judicial reform have been hurting the state of Israel by using these extortionate techniques. I wish they would stop that, let them have debates. There is nothing about this judicial reform that has anything to do with the economy, that has anything to do with high technology, and has anything to do with Israel's ability to defend itself through the military. And I think those areas should be kept out of this debate. All right, a few issues to break down here. I see where you have some areas of agreement and disagreements. I see when you nod, when each other speaks. So um, let me circle back to one of your earlier points. Simcha, is the court the only thing standing in Israel between majority rule and human rights? In other words, if the judicial reform passes as it stands at the moment, will you, as part of the legislative, have unlimited powers as, you know, opposition to the reform tends to claim. So uh, before uh, Professor Dershowitz said that he's not the elephant in the room, he's the donkey because of he's a Democrat. Maybe I'm not so much into American politics, but probably I need to take the position of the elephant. So um, there are many things that I wouldn't like any entity of government to have 
the right to decide. So not the judicial and not the, the parliament and not the executive, because I like small government, because I am to the right. Um, having said that, in Israel, the system is very, very to the left. Even the right people in Israel will be considered Democrats in, in here, uh, most of them. So, so, so economically. economically, yes. So, so it's a, it's a different issue a little bit. It's hard to compare. Having said that, the fact that the, the court is basically limitless, that's a huge problem. And for, to that, I think Professor Dershowitz agrees. To solve the, I would be able to solve the problem and says, let them just decide issues of human rights. But what is not human rights? What is outside the scope of equality? Any law, almost any law that I know of, someone can make the claim it's, inequal, it's unequal. Any law that I can think of takes away property from people. If, if I want to defend property, let's cancel the IRS. Uh, if I want to defend um, freedom of movement, let's, let's abolish the police. Uh, because because they, they prevent people from walking into places they Orders. shouldn't walk. So, 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 it's, so you, you need to have limits on human rights. And every decision you make, everywhere you pass the line, someone would be able to tell you, oh, you did it too much. And that's what happened in the U.S. on many issues. Mm -hmm. And it's changed over years. And it's changed with politics. What is the limit in Israel? In Israel, and, and I was a little bit... Uh, when, when Professor Dershowitz spoke about freedom of speech as an example, Israel does not have uh, freedom of speech in its basic laws. It, enshrined in a constitution. It's not, or we a don't constitution. have a constitution at all. But even if you look at basic laws as a constitution, we don't have freedom of speech. I think freedom of speech in Israel is quite protected compared to many, many, many countries in the world that has freedom of speech in their constitution. So the def defense does not come from the constitution, as Professor Dershowitz said, it's come from the hearts of the people. But the court, in three different cases, took away freedom of speech from the people that the Knesset gave. When the, law, when the court canceled the law of Arutz Sheva, where are we sitting now? We are sitting now in a convention, it says here, Arutz Sheva. The Knesset legislated that Arutz Sheva was the only outlet for the right for many, many years will be able to broadcast, giving freedom of speech. Who took this freedom of speech? The court canceled the laws and the, and the, and the judicial system and the prosecution prosecuted everyone who was involved in Arutz Sheva while not prosecuting people who were involved in other radio stations. And the second example? And the second example, I, I won't go yeah. to the third, really. Thank you for the hint. <laughs> um, just recently, there is a huge corporation in Israel that is funded by the government and broadcast news and media and do podcasts. It's called the Israeli Broadcast Authority. It's getting from 
taxpayer money, almost a billion shekels a year. In the U.S., it would be deemed as hurting the freedom of speech because the way to shout, to shut down people, other people's speech is to shout very loudly, as we just learned yesterday night. So if you shout with the billion shekel budget, what are the chances of a smaller private-owned radio station or private-owned TV stations? They need to compete in an unfair with the, in an unfair situation with the government. So the legislator said, let's divide the power there. Let's not have this kind of broadcasting authority that uh, broadcasts the news, which is the most delicate issue that you don't want the government to be involved with. The court canceled this law and basically prevented freedom of speech for many, many small players. So the, the, the legislator gives power, freedom of speech in Israel and the courts take. So to say that the court is a defender of rights, and I wouldn't even start with the examples on criminal procedures where historically in Israel, legislation is so much more liberal, progressive, take it wherever you want, than what the courts does, because most of the judges, or not most, many of the judges come from the prosecution, and we have, uh, I, I will just give one number, I know, I'm sorry about, about the time, I will just give one number. I just recently discovered, during a hearing in the Constitution Committee that I got the numbers of how many wiretaps are being asked by the police every year and how many the courts approve. Now, only certain judges have the authority to approve. They approve 99.6% of the wiretaps that the police asks. There is another kind of wiretaps from the Shin Bet, from the Shabak, which doesn't go through the court. It goes in a different path. And the head of the Shabak, when he's looking on his own workers after all those uh, um, inner checks that they have in there, he is more, uh, he is canceling more wiretaps in percentage and in numbers than the, than, the, than the court. So the court is not. I'm sad to say that in Israel, if you want to look for people to protect your freedom of speech or your uh, freedom of due process in the criminal procedure, don't go to the court, go to the legislator. Well, no, I, I, think, that's, I think that's wrong. I think what you go to is a system of checks and balances. Uh, the great uh, philosopher Montesquieu contributed enormously to democratic theory, which the United States picked up in its constitution, by creating a system of checks and balances, a system where all power is not in the legislature, all power is not in the judiciary, all power is not in the executive. There are imperfections. And today, for example, the shoe is exactly on the other foot in America. Today, the left, the left wants to weaken the Supreme Court because they don't like its decisions. In Israel, the right wants to weaken the Supreme Court because they don't like its decisions. We're not going to get perfect decisions. But I have this question. I, 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 Say it again. I have a question here because both sides here are talking in terms of saving the democracy. And no, I I'm not. Democracy is not, not going to be in but, danger either but way. The system, okay, so the system of checks and balances, is it in place to, to keep the democracy or keep liberalism? Because I know that Mr. Rotman here, he makes the distinction between the two, democracy and liberalism. So what you're talking about is a system of 
you know, saving liberalism? No, of course not. No. Uh, okay. The system of checks and balances often saves conservatism, as it does in the United no. States. The Supreme Court today is checking the, leg the liberal legislative actions and liberal actions of some lower courts. Sometimes the right wins, sometimes the left wins. Sometimes the courts are wrong, sometimes the legislature is wrong. The one thing that's absolutely essential is that no branch of government have unlimited power. That's why we Agreed. need compromise. That's why we need some areas where the courts have the last word. It was Justice Jackson who brilliantly, probably the greatest justice in American history, even greater than Louis Brandeis, great, great justice, who once said, we are not final because we are right. We are only right because we are final. And courts are often wrong. I am one of the most strident critics of American courts. I wrote a book called Supreme Injustice railing against the Supreme Court. If you think your criticism of the Israeli Supreme Court is harsh, read my book. I am a very big critic of the courts. I'm a critic of the legislature. I'm a critic of the presidency. I'm a critic of everybody and everything. And that's why checks and balances are so important, because nobody always wins with checks and balances. Today, the left is prevailing. Tomorrow, the right will prevail. The one thing we have to assure is that no branch of government has the ability to have its will over the minority over all people. You're right about freedom of speech. These are complicated cases. In the United States, we have Citizens United. The relationship between money and speech is one of the most complex areas of law. But my point is that there has to be an interplay between the legislative branch and the executive branch and the judicial branch. That's why I would like to see a compromise, for example, in some areas, and you're right, it's hard to define what is a human rights issue and what is a property issue. By the way, I wouldn't protect property. I didn't include property or even the freedom of movement. I talked about essentially two points, freedom of speech and due process, which are the essential tools of democracy. There's always going to be a dispute between that. Every judicial system has that. The question is, can it be resolved in a way that doesn't give power more power to one branch than others. And that's what I think a compromise will bring about, where the Supreme Court has the final word on some issues, but not on other issues. We haven't even had time, and we don't have time, right. to talk about how you select the justices. That, to me, is the biggest barrier no to what's Israel. going on in Israel today. When I spoke to all the people, and I've spoke to all mm -hmm. the people in Israel, they were all prepared to compromise on this issue of whether override should be permitted on all or only some decisions, what the number should be an override, where the real problem was is in who picks the judges. Okay. Um, Simcha, before we wrap it up, I have to ask you, negotiators are talking about a compromise now. Many people in Israel are very doubtful that a compromise is actually something within reach. Um, did you expect the reform to face this huge public backlash as it did? And, and do you think that this means that a compromise is sort of dead upon arrival, actually? I think that the issues that uh, Professor Dershowitz just spoke at the end, uh, judges' selection, I think that sums it up. Because you really can't agree on anything else. And I, judges' selection, 
I believe, I see it, in, there is a famous method of deciding how to split a cake. So I, every time when I came to negotiate, I came and I would do the same with Professor Dershowitz. Whatever rule you want to give the Supreme Court, wherever powers, whatever powers, by all means, I'm signing. You want, him, you want the court to cancel laws? Okay. You want the court to cancel basic laws? Okay. You want, I appointed judges. And then suddenly everyone understands that, oh, I don't want an entity all-powerful. I, I believe that in Israel, the left wants to give more power to the courts, not because checks and balances, because the court is unchecked and unbalanced, and there is no decision in Israel that the court cannot make um, in the current situation. Um, the, the left wants the court to have this all-powerful, uh, super-powerful tools to cancel and make every decision and any appointment and any, uh, cancel any laws that he sees fit because when he looks at the judges, he sees people like him or, the, or her. And when he looks at the politics, he knows that the public in Israel will never vote for them. So it's not about big issues of jurisprudence or rule of law or democracy. It's about I want my way to win. A minority Doesn't rule. matter what the outcome of the elections. I agree. What will happen in Israel is if you get your way and you get to pick all the judges and it suddenly turns extremely, extremely right and the Knesset moves more and more left, we're going to see exactly the same, same problem with a mirror image. True. That's that why you can't win. The, of course. You can't win. That's why. There has to be a compromise. Professor Dershowitz. Yeah. So that's you agree the reason, that there has to be a compromise? That's the reason. Exactly what you said. That's the reason when the, from the first draft of the way we appoint our judges in, yeah. that we offered in the Constitution Committee to the last draft, we change it based on those ideas, because I agree that you cannot have the power to, uh, to appoint all the judges or to pack the court yeah. or others, the mechanisms that we introduced, Minister Levine and myself and the heads of the coalition, is saying that no elected Knesset, no elected parliament could appoint more than two judges on makes their sense. own agenda. That makes sense. That's now Look, on the table, there nothing were, else. There were probably three people, you, me and you, who really want to see structural reform for the sake of structural reform. We have differences, but we believe in it as a matter of structural reform. The vast majority of people, including in this audience, they just want to see what's best for their political side. Whichever side comes out on the conservative side of your conservative, liberal side you're liberal, we're happy to accept that structure. Very few people in America or in Israel care about process, care about procedure, care about structure. They just want to get it their way. It's becoming worse in Israel. It's almost as bad as it is in the United States. In the United States, it's terrible. Everybody just wants it 100% their way and doesn't want to see any compromise on the other side. I think the Israeli people understand the need for compromise at a time when its national security is endangered by Iran. And I think that if, if I can come to Israel and help bring about a compromise, if any of us can just bring, and we won't agree, we're not going to agree, we'll walk out angry at each other. 
But in the end, we can get something that we can live with. And that's the important thing. Can you grant Mr. Dorshevitz uh, an open invitation to come and, you know, uh, maneuver the negotiations around the table at, at the president's residence? It means that he will need to add me to his short list. The next time he's in Israel, we will need to have dinner with Chief Justice Aaron Barak, Netanyahu, and myself. All right. Will there be a reform, yes or no, eventually? Will something change? As I said in the beginning, I believe status quo is not an option. I believe we need to get to a decent compromise. Okay. I think we can do it. The only thing that stops it is what Professor Dershowitz just said. Some parts of Israeli politics, and I'm not pointing fingers, it's the left, <laughs> does not want to get to a compromise okay. whatsoever. They wouldn't even sign their own bill. But there are people on the right and the left who don't want compromise. Okay, we'll so deal with them. Let's agree over here. All right. Thank you, gentlemen, for this Thank fascinating you. discussion. Solid arguments on both sides. Thank you so much. Okay. Still here at uh, beautiful uh, SFO, and I hope you enjoyed that discussion between Alan Dershowitz and uh, Knesset member Simcha Rothman. And what do you think about uh, judicial reform? Who, who do you think is right here? And, and do you think that uh, there's biases involved here? You can write me an email to yishai at yishaifleischer.com. There's security warnings here at the SFO airport, but everything seems okay, so don't get nervous. Um, and um, after, after the conference that I was at, uh, I actually flew to here to San Francisco. I gave a really fun talk yesterday. I was very happy with it. I think people really enjoyed it. A lot of nationalists, right-wing, Russian Jews... Um, came to my talk here in Redwood City, uh, and that's after we also hung out with uh, a new Chabad house, a new Chabad yeshiva that was started by a family that we're friendly with. Uh, and everywhere we went, we actually uh, we actually put up three mezuzot, three mezuzot. Also on our on our friend finding mission and our supporters finding mission, we also ended up bringing a lot of holiness into this region, and and it needs it. It needs it. Uh, it, it needs a, a little bit of a holiness infusion. Uh, this uh, San Francisco region. Uh, there are some very beautiful places here, but but you could sense that kedusha has not touched the holiness has not touched this region, region overly. Uh, speaking of Kedusha, um, one of the most Kedosh symbols that we have uh, for the Jewish people in Israel is the menorah. I always think that it's actually our central image, iconic image that we have. And if that is so, um, what was the debate over the menorah being the symbol uh, of the state of Israel? And remember, the Chanukiah is like the bigger menorah, right? So if you're using that word... Uh, we use the seven candle candelabra. That's the that's the menorah, and then the cherukiah is eight candles. Um, in any case, that candelabra image is really central to the Jewish people because, and that's what I when I when I depict Jerusalem, and I'm making a video right now about the biblical highway. I use the menorah as the way to depict Jerusalem. Other people said to me, "Why don't you use the Ark of the Covenant or or, or the Holy of Holies?" And I said, no, the real uh, you know, symbol, in my opinion, of Jerusalem is actually the menorah because it's a light onto the world. There was a very hot debate whether the menorah should be indeed uh, the symbol for the state of Israel. And our very own Rabbi Shimshon Nadel, our Kohen, uh, our resident uh, both scholar uh, and priest, uh, has that uh, story for you, which is the, the debate, the hot debate over whether the menorah should be the symbol of the state of Israel.
Shalom Yishai. Parashat Baha'alotcha, which is read in the diaspora this Shabbat, begins with the commandment to Aharon, the priest, to kindle the menorah in the Mishkan, the tabernacle. The menorah, such a central symbol in Judaism, much, much later in history, was chosen as the official symbol of the state of Israel, flanked on each side by an olive branch. This familiar image was designed by Gabriel and Maxim Shamir, two brothers from Latvia who studied graphics and design in Berlin prior to making Aliyah, to moving to Israel, and were responsible for creating a number of emblems, medals, stamps, and currency for the young state. Their menorah was adopted as the official emblem by the Provisional Council of the State of Israel on February 10th, 1949. And it's easy to understand why the emblem was adopted by the nascent nation. The menorah has long been a central symbol in Judaism since antiquity. In addition to its role in the Mishkan, the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, and its central role in the Hanukkah story, images of the menorah have been found in synagogues, cemeteries, mosaics, and seals throughout centuries of Jewish history. The decision to surround it with olive branches is based on the vision of Zechariah in chapter 4 of a menorah flanked by olive branches. But the choice of the menorah as the official symbol of the state of Israel was not without controversy. Upon careful inspection, the menorah depicted on Israel's national emblem is the very menorah that appears on the Arch of Titus in Rome. Built circa 81 CE by Emperor Domitian to commemorate the victories of his brother Titus, including his conquest of Jerusalem. The southern panel of the arch famously depicts Roman soldiers with celebratory wreaths on their heads, parading vessels taken from the Holy Temple, the shulchan, the table, trumpets, fire pans, and at its center, the menorah. Chief Rabbi Yitzchak Halevi Herzog strongly objected to the choice for Israel's emblem as he believed that the menorah which appears on the Arch of Titus is not the menorah from the Holy Temple. For of Herzog, most compelling is the hexagonal base of the menorah which appears on the Arch. According to the Talmud in Tractate Menachot and Rashi in his comments to the book of Exodus, Sefer Shmot, Perak Chafhei, chapter 25, the menorah had a three-legged base not a hexagonal base. In fact, images of a three-legged menorah appear in carvings on a number of ancient synagogues and graves and in ancient mosaics throughout Israel. Another concern for Rabbi Herzog were the dragons and other mythical beasts like griffins and lions and eagles and sea creatures depicted on the base. According to Rabbi Herzog, it is inconceivable that such idolatrous creatures could be depicted on a menorah that stood in the Holy Temple. In fact, the use of objects ornamented with dragons is strictly forbidden by Jewish law per the Mishnah in Avodazara in the third chapter. More proof that the menorah on the Arch of Titus is not the menorah from the Holy Temple. Instead, Rav Herzog suggested that it is possible that something happened to the original base of the menorah on its way from Jerusalem to Rome, and the Romans replaced the original base with the hexagonal base that is depicted on the arch. Rabbi Herzog concludes and writes, quote, What emerges from all of this is that our government has not done well today when we have merited again the light of Zion, symbolized by the light of the menorah, copying specifically the image of the menorah on the Arch of Titus, which was made by the hands of foreigners and not made in purity of holiness, according to the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, 
Moses, our teacher, genius of geniuses, and from other sources derived by the great leaders of Torah and wise men. And not just that, he continued, but an expert archaeologist testified before me that the menorah and menorot depicted on graves and in catacombs of Rome are all three-legged, as are all of the menorot depicted on mosaics of the remains of synagogues found in the land of Israel. Rabbi Herzog was not the only one to question the identity and authenticity of the menorah that appears on the Arch of Titus. Both Rabbi Yosef Kapach, a very important Yemenite scholar, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe believed that the branches of the temple menorah were straight and not curved, based on an illustration of Maimonides in a manuscript of his, to his commentary to tractate Menachot, his Perush HaMishnah, his commentary on the Mishnah Menachot. Accordingly, they did not believe that the menorah on the Arch of Titus was the menorah from the Holy Temple. It would appear as if the Shamir brothers anticipated the objection and controversy, at least the objectionable, objectionable mythical beasts on the base of the Arch of Titus menorah. And so they obscured these images in the emblem of Israel when they designed the emblem. Instead, they appear as unclear, squiggly lines on the emblem's base. Herbert Herzog advocated that the Provisional Council adopt one of the other submissions. But his opposition fell on deaf ears. Even other religious Zionist rabbis did not voice an objection. Very quickly, the controversial new emblem gained acceptance. In time for Israel's first Independence Day, even the religious Zionist newspaper, Hatzofeh, chose the new emblem to grace the cover of one of its supplements. For some, the choice of the menorah from the Arch of Titus in Rome for the newly created modern state of Israel was symbolic and meaningful. For centuries, the Arch of Titus represented the destruction of the Holy Temple and Jerusalem. It represented the long exile, but following Israel's independence, that very same image took on new life and new meaning. Now that they had built a state and returned home to Jerusalem, they viewed the image with a newfound sense of hope and even victory. The menorah from the Arch of Titus, along with other images invoking that famous relief in Rome, began to appear on Jewish book covers and on monuments and in religious art following the founding of the state of Israel. The symbol was adopted by the Jewish state and has since become a source of national pride. Wishing all of the listeners blessings from Jerusalem. All right. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shimshon Nadel. That was beautiful and interesting. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether indeed uh, the menorah is the right symbol for the Jewish people in the state of Israel. Is that our central, you know, because there's a shofar, I don't know, there's a dreidel, I don't know. There's all kinds of symbols, there's all kinds of little mini icons, but what's the icon? Uh, in my opinion, uh, the menorah is indeed the icon of the Jewish people and of the state of Israel. Uh, but that's not what's on the flag, by the way, right? It's not what's on the flag. Uh, we have a Star of David on the flag. So, okay, icons, icons, the issue of icons is very interesting. Um, in any case, I am here at SFO Airport, and I'm boarding a plane to Cleveland in just a few minutes. Uh, so I'm getting a little bit nervous because I, I keep recording, but as soon I got I got a board. Uh, but I also want to talk a little bit about uh, what Ben Bresky was up to. So uh, my man Ben Bresky went on a bicycle trip. 
And in fact, I got an email about that bicycle trip from a guy named Zev. And Zev writes, Hi, Ishai. Just a note about one of your sponsors, Kosher Cycle Tours. Last Friday, I took a Kosher Cycle Tour in Jerusalem with Chabad of Baka Friendship Circle. It was a great ride in parts, of, in parts of the beautiful country you can't see by car, traveling through natural and urban settings. Uh, it had challenges for fit people and more than doable for less than fit people with great bikes provided, plenty of snacks, drinks, and just the right amount of rest stops. Uh, meeting the owner, my friend Aaron, it's clear he could lead a bicycle tour at any level. And it was a special treat for me to meet Ben Bresky. Uh, thanks, Kosher Cycle Tours and Chabad of Baka Friendship Circle. Continued success to you, Yishai, and all you do. You are a Jewish superhero. Beshalom, Zev. Okay, Zev, thank you very much for that great email. And uh, our man, Ben Bresky, was indeed on the scene at Emek Ha'arazim, and he's got the story of this place in Israel uh, and the bicycle tour with one of our sponsors, Kosher Cycle Tours. This is a moment in Jewish history. Emek Ha'arazim, or Arazim National Park, is located in the Ramot neighborhood of Jerusalem, tucked in between Meinif Toach, Lifta Valley, and Har HaMenuchot. Its trees and rolling green hills don't feel like a part of Israel's largest city, but it is. I visited there last week for the annual Chabad of Baca Bicycle Fundraiser for Friendship Circle of South Jerusalem, sponsored by Kosher Cycle Tours. There are remains of early agriculture, including a Second Temple-era irrigation system. The name Emek Arazim was given to the area in 1923 by the pioneers of Enot Telem. Even before being developed, it was a center of attraction for travelers, as Yehoshua Yellen, one of the founders of nearby Moza and the Nachalat Shiva neighborhood in downtown Jerusalem, wrote in 1884. The place as a whole is remarkable for its fresh and pleasant air, and its light and sweet waters. There are three large springs there, apart from small springs. In all the surroundings of Jerusalem, there is no place as beautiful and pleasant as it. And so every summer, the rich of Jerusalem go out to sit there in tents and enjoy the light and water. When we came for the first time to this place, we inhaled the fresh air, and when we smelled the scent of the pleasant flowers, and when we drank the light and sweet water, all of which will not be seen or found in Jerusalem and in all its surroundings, we were greatly amazed. The land was initially purchased in 1906 by two of the founders of Rehovot, Aharon Eisenberg and the engineer Dove Klimker, as an agricultural and industrial area. Adjacent to the central spring, they built a textile mill. The oil waste from the textile mill was used to make soap. Today, Ramot is the largest neighborhood in the city, but back then it was far from any built-up areas and prone to attacks. The establishment of the factories encountered financial difficulties, and the initiative failed to take off. By 1911, the factories were closed down. In 1923, Professor Chaim Pick and Rabbi Yehoshua Lieb Fishman Maimon bought the land. Eight Jewish families settled there, renovated the factory, and laid a cornerstone for an agricultural school for religious girls. The renewed community was given the name Emek Arazim, apparently after the large cypress trees that grow in the stream, which are similar in appearance to cedar trees, or Arazim. 
During the massacres of 1929, in which rioters killed and looted Jewish communities in Hebron, Jerusalem, Sfat, and other places, the residents were under threat and they fled to Moza until that too was attacked. Although Moza recovered and still exists today, Enot Telem did not. In 1934, there was a proposal to house yeshiva students there, but nothing came to fruition. And what became of the two entrepreneurs whose startup in Emek Ha'arazim failed? Well, Rabbi Fishman changed his name to the more Hebrew-sounding Rabbi Maimon and went on to found Israel's rabbinate with his friend Rabbi Avraham Yitzhak Cook, who became the first chief rabbi. Rabbi Maimon went on to become the State of Israel's first Minister of Religious Affairs and was awarded the Israel Prize for his contribution to rabbinic literature. Professor Chaim Pick managed the World Mizrahi Organization, which still exists today. In 1927, he represented Mizrahi in Germany for several years, but the group was forced to shut down when the Nazis came to power. He fled back to Israel in 1934, where he completed his work on the development of Semitic languages, in particular ancient Hebrew. His son, Walter Pinchas Pick, also became a professor and married Hannah Pick Gosler, who had lived in Amsterdam next to the Frank family and was friendly with their daughter of the same age, Anne Frank. Hannah is mentioned in Anne Frank's now famous diary. I met Hannah Pick during one of her many lectures around the world to discuss her escape from Nazi Europe and the loss of her childhood friend Anne. In modern times, the area adjacent to Emek Ha'arazim became the neighborhood of Ramat Alon, known more commonly as Ramot, established in 1974. It is named for the nearby tomb of the prophet Samuel, who according to the Bible was buried in Ramah. The valley was subject to controversy when the Safti Plan, named after famed architect Moshe Safti, was submitted in 1998, a large-scale campaign against creating apartment complexes and high-rise condominiums in a nature reserve was launched, and the plan was officially canceled in 2007. Emeka Arazim is also home to the September 11th Memorial. The 9-11 Living Memorial Plaza is located on a hill in the valley, and the metal sculpture is made out of ruins of the World Trade Center. The Jewish National Fund and Israel's Nature and Parks Authority rehabilitated the area and created scenic walking paths, preserved the archaeology, and created a unique children's playground and a bicycle path. And that's where I come in. As I watched the cyclists with their tzitzit and beards flowing in the breeze, I wondered if Chabad ever thought that a branch of their Hasidic movement would hold a bikeathon in a nature reserve in Jerusalem. Chabad was founded in 1775 by Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi, a prominent student of the Magid of Mezrich, who in turn was a successor to the founder of the Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov. He later moved to Lubavitch in Russia, from which their name, the Lubavitcher Hasidim, come. Their connection to Israel started almost from the beginning. Rabbi Shneer Zalman, known as the Altar Rebbe, was briefly arrested by the Russian authorities because he urged his followers to send charity to their fellow Jews in the land of Israel. Because of this, he was falsely accused of supporting the Ottoman Empire, which at the time ruled the territory of Israel and was at odds with Russia. 
The Alter Rebbe founded the charity Kolel Chabad in 1788. It still exists today and is the oldest continuously operating charity in Israel. Chabad also sent followers. Starting in 1777, Chabad families moved to Svat and Tiveria. In 1815, a Chabad community was established in Hebron. Later in 1845, the granddaughter of the Alter Rebbe, Menucha Rachel Slonim, and her family moved to Hebron, where they led the community for over 40 years. Unfortunately, many of her descendants were killed in the 1929 riots, the same ones that ended the community of Enot Telem. The rough days of pre-state Israel are a far cry from the well-maintained park where Jews from around the world enjoy watermelon on a hot day to raise charity. The Rebbe may not have imagined a kosher cycle tour with yeshiva students in fitness gear, but the pioneers of yesteryear would probably have been proud of today's reality. According to the JNF, Israel is one of the few, if only, countries in the world with more trees today than it had a century ago, and Emeka Arazim Park can attest to this. This has been a moment in Jewish history. My name is Ben Bresky. Thank you to Yishai Fleischer. Thank you to all the listeners. And Shalom. All right, folks, we're back here. Thank you very much, Ben, uh, for uh, give, giving us that great sound from Kosher Cycle Tours and uh, Emeka Arazim, and another beautiful place to visit in Yerushalayim, Yerikodesh. I am so far away right now from Yerushalayim, Yerikodesh. I'm in San Francisco. Libi b'mizrach v'anochi b'sof ma'arav. My heart is in the uh, east, but my... Uh, I, I am found in the furthest west. One could argue that, that uh, California is indeed the, the furthest west, or one could argue that, uh, you know, Hawaii. But I, I say no. I say the real end of the west is here, uh, the, the coast of California. Um, I am bummed about something, and that is that this week is my favorite Torah portion in Israel, and I'm missing it by being in Cleveland, which is great, but we're hearing the same Torah portion as I heard last week, which is Balotcha. Um, so I'm excited a little bit about being in Cleveland, but I'm a little disappointed that I'm missing uh, Parshat Shlach, my favorite Torah portion. Uh, Torah portion of Shlach is the one about the sin of the spies, and I guess I'll talk about it more next week. Uh, but I will mention here that Baalotcha, and that's, I guess, the reason why Rabbi Shimshon Nadel talked a lot about the menorah. It starts with the menorah, and it's got a lot of interesting stories, including negative stories about Jewish people rejecting Moses, rejecting uh, the manna. Rejecting mana, that does not sound dumb to you. That is just so, such not the way to go. Um, but one of the stories is people that didn't reject, and that is those that chose to do, um, that, that asked to be able to do the Paschal sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice, which they missed because they had been um, uh, tainted with the impurity of death, of touching a dead body, and therefore they weren't able to do in Tahara with, with purity, uh, the Paschal sacrifice, and they asked for another chance. They asked for more. And as I explain every year, um, they didn't actually have to do it. They could have. They could have taken a pass. They they didn't get a fail for not doing the Paschal sacrifice because they were uh, forced not to do it because of their situation. They could have just gotten away with it by getting a P. But, and, and, but they didn't want that pee. They wanted the pee of Passover. And so they asked Moses, can you find us a way to still do that offering, to do that paschal sacrifice? And you know what happened? 
uh, because they yearned for more, they got more. And God said to them, sure, here's a way to do it by having a second chance. And just that, that impulse of saying to God, I want more, I want to get closer to you, I think is the impulse of people like yourself who listen to the show, who want to do more, who want to build Israel. They don't, you don't have to. Who want to wear tchelet. You don't have to. Who want to go to the Temple Mount. You don't have to. Who want to buy an apartment in the land of Israel, move to the land of Israel, connect to the land of Israel. You don't have to. Uh, who want to learn more Torah. You don't have to. Who want to be Gentiles who want to come closer to God in Torah. You don't have to. You could, you could get a pass. But no, they, they didn't want a pass. They wanted a P2. They wanted a second chance, a Passover 2, to get closer to God. That's what I think uh, this Torah portion's. that's the heroes uh, of this Torah portion. And so there is darkness, and then there is light. And that light is the menorah. That light is the, the uh, second Pesach, those who want more to get closer to God. Amazing stuff. Um, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, and I'm here at SFO. I want to thank the good folks that make this show happen. Yochevet Seidman, Moshe Herman, Ben Brasky, Tabitha, and Lewin were live. Uh, they make the show happen. And uh, I want to thank you for helping the show when you donate to uh, Buy Me a Coffee, buymeacoffee.com forward slash Yishai. That's really, really nice of you to be supportive. And, you know, I'm here out in SFO. I'm, I'm out here, you know, hauling, hauling, uh, Calling Tuchas here to get closer to Am Israel, to get closer to lovers of Israel, and to bring uh, and to bring the the light of Israel out uh, to these parts. It's not always easy, uh, but it's also always a privilege to be part of God's great uh, mission. And you're a part of it wherever you are. I do want to thank uh, the sponsors of the show, like JNS.org and JewishPress.com, uh, and our good friends uh, at at uh, TheIsraelBible.com. And, of course, uh, at uh, prohibitionpickle.co.il and our friends at High on the Har, uh, who uh, bring you up to the Temple Mount. You know, Prohibition Pickle feeds you with holiness. Temple Mount will, 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 will ensconce your body and your soul in, in closeness to God. And, of course, uh, the Hebron Fund, which is the, uh, the, the, spon- the, 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 the defender of the Jewish community of Hebron, which is the defender of the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs. And so, my friends, uh, out of SFO, I want to wish you uh, lots of blessings. I want to thank, again, the folks at the Jerusalem Conference for providing us with that audio uh, of the debate between Dershowitz and, uh, and Simcha Rothman and to Rabbi Shimshon Nadel and to Ben Bresky. Uh, and all of you out there, so much love and so much blessings from not exactly the, you know, a blessed land, but not the land of blessings. The land of blessings is Israel, but it's the heart of the world. At the end, it's one world, right? Jerusalem is meant to be uh, a light into the whole world. At the end, we're supposed to bless the whole world. And that's what we got to be. We got to be people of blessings. We are, a, we are trying to be blessers. And therefore, we should not curse the world. We should not look down at the world. We want to be a, play, a, a people that brings joy and light into the world. And that's something that I work on, you know, not to spread negativity. I'm here to spread positivity. And that's what we have to do. We have to spread Hashem's light in our time. And of course, the heart of that light comes from Jerusalem and from the menorah, as Rabbi Shimshon Nadel taught us uh, today. All right, folks, it's boarding time. So lots of love and lots of blessings from SFO. And we'll be seeing you soon in the good land. Be in touch with me, Yishaiyishaifleischer.com. Thank you, Hashem, for everything. And thank you. Stay tuned. Stay in touch. Stay connected. Stay part of the story. Stay strong. And shalom.